Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, Chef Andre Luceman talks about how sustainability can be achievable for high street restaurants like his own. Next, we speak to Tim Breaker at Vital, an app and sustainable takeaway container service in Europe. Finally, we speak to Julian Swinkles at Carbon Council, a company looking to inspire behavioural change through offering personal CO2 emission insights. First up, here's Andre Luceman. Okay, so welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, Amy, and thanks for inviting me. Um, my name is Andre Lussman, and um, I run a small independent group of restaurants, uh, not in the southwest, um, in the southeast, called Lussman's. Fantastic, yeah. And can you tell us a bit about your background in hospitality and how Lussman's came to be? Um, I've worked in hospitality for 30 years, um, and um, I've worked across various parts of the sector and the industry um, over those 30 years. The last 20 years, um, Lussmans has been around and it was built or it was designed with a simple idea of, can we create a high street um, restaurant company that um, is essentially sustainable? So has very strong ethical decision-making mechanism in place. And I suppose, you know, the example to me was always um, uh, the body shop in that it wasn't, luxury top end um it was definitely premium but it was still high street and i always felt that beyond you know your vegetarian cafe or your owner or or owner driven independent one-off business um sustainability only ranked high in very expensive hotels and i always felt why can't we have free range chicken on the high street Um, why can't we have restaurants that have very strong ethical a very strong ethical approach and a sustainable ethos um, on the high street. Um, and that's why Lussman's came about, trying to fuse together, I suppose, the best bits of a chain. You know, it's accessible, um, uh, it has charming staff, its cost base is right, it's very consistent with its offering, or at least they used to be anyway. Um, and the independent is feisty, it has personality, it's passionate, um, it's not driven purely by uh, the financial objectives of the PL. Um, and the decision-making is very nimble. So I thought, why couldn't Lussmans be a business that brought together the best bits from the chains and the best bits from the independent, um, and I suppose underpin it with very strong ethical behaviours that, you know, they're not, not always um, there to alert the customer because, you know, essentially hospitality is about looking after people as opposed to banging the drum. Absolutely. So that's like you say um sustainable food is seen as more expensive and it it often is so how do you sort of like get that cost down and make sustainable dining classy but classless as you put it well i i think the first thing is is that you you know you have to make sustainability um, a very regular thing um and i've always believed that um the best way to make sustainability happen um is by default i it's just what you do and therefore I would uh, generalize in that the majority of customers come to our restaurants, you know, go to people's bars, eat out in people's cafes with the understanding that they, um, 
they feel the service is good and the product is, it, it, it tastes great and it's a consistent offering. Um, and I suppose if you can, can major on those cornerstones of a business, I be really good at what you do, um, then essentially you'll be busy. And if you're busy, then the sustainable element just kicks in. It's almost as though, it's not by stealth, but it's almost as though you're saying to customers, though this is our philosophy, um, it's, not, it's not the main sort of drivers in getting you here. Because I still feel that, you know, a business that might be very, very artisan and, and, and very sustainable, but actually doesn't major on you know, the more business end of, of, of hospitality, will invariably not attract many customers. So you really want to be really good at what you do in order to get people through the door. And then just, you know, by default, they sort of might come across the fact that, wow, these people are doing things really well. You know, um, but I still fear the majority of us who eat out, eat out with the view of, you know, is it consistent? Are the staff charming? And hopefully it's not too expensive and it's around the corner. You know, and if, if those things are in place and you do them well, then you can have a full restaurant and then you can make sure that the, the decisions which we make, um, which invariably sometimes are more expensive than not being sustainable, um, carry through. Definitely, yes. Yeah. So how is your food sourced sort of sustainably and ethically as a, as a fish and grill um, establishment? Do you use any sort of um, foundations such as the Marine Conservation Society to sort of guide your sourcing? Um, the sourcing, the provenance of what we do um, uh, is a very big part of what we do. And we all know that when you think about sustainability and ethics in restaurants, everyone considers food to be the major driver. Um, I'm happy to say it's not the only thing that we do, but it was something that we looked at very closely 20 years ago. And over the last 20 years, we've just got better and better at what we're offering. So we've now got to a point whereby, um, you know, uh, the, our, our beef, you know, and, and our meat is either, you know, it's, it's either pasture fed, outdoor bred and British at worst or soil associated organic. Um, we don't always, um, we're not always able to get sort of specific organic because sometimes the volume of what we buy in, um, it isn't there. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the rest of our food stuff with chicken, lamb, duck, etc., it's all British, it's all free range and it's all outdoor bread um, as and where required. Um, and then with the fish, we, you know, we worked very hard over the years to work with M M the MCS, you know, the Marine Conservation Society, to work out what species were sustainable and what were appropriate for the dinner table. I don't think um, I ever received a customer um, comment about this part of the business. You know, it was something that we believed in or I believed in, but it certainly wasn't something that customers were hunting for, you know, as far as they were concerned. And I still think it's very prevalent today. People went out to eat. It was... Um, it's, you know, you're going out to enjoy a treat with friends and family. Um, the, the provenance and, and the sustainability, again, is, is not as important as it probably should be. So we started off with MCS, and then it became very clear that there's so much hogwash and vagaries, and there's so much um, misunderstanding about um, food and where it comes from and how it's harnessed and how it's managed. Um, and I got introduced to the MSC blue tick kite mark, you know, um, as a as a verification almost, as an audit of where our fish came from. And it made very clear sense to us that as opposed to trying to support a small fishing village that brings in the catch, who actually don't 
really know where their fish is coming from and don't really know whether that fish will be in the sea in 20 years time. It became much clearer for us to just, I suppose, support a kite mark that clearly labelled this species as being sustainable, i.e. You know, the, the fish that we were um, taking, well, the fish where, wherever the fish was coming from, it was being populated far faster than what was being taken out of the sea. Um, but again, you know, you, you, it's very hard to try and distill these decisions and, and, this, uh, and this perspective in, in the way in which you manage your business because customers haven't got time to learn about MSC and sustainability, you know. So, you know, quite often you just make decisions as to this is what we're going to do as a business. We're going to stick our neck out because MSC, for example, costs 10% more per unit of fish. There's also the cost of the passport, you know, the verification between the custody of you, the end user, that of the wholesaler, that of the fish wholesaler, and that of the fisherman. Um, so there's a long list of communities that have to verify what they're doing is correct. And that obviously is, is classified by scientists. So there is an extra cost there. And we have found that we can't really pass on the extra cost to the customer. So again, it comes back to that point, which is we've got to be busy in which to make sure that we dilute those extra costs and make sustainability effective um, and useful to a wider range of customers as possible, rather than it being sort of Notting Hill and only for those which are very wealthy. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. So yeah, after you've had a customer who's you know enjoyed all of your lovely sustainable food, how do you then dispose of food waste or prep waste and how is it converted into renewable energy? Well, I, I realized again, a long time ago, that we were going to create food waste. We're a high street you know, uh, business. Um, we are growing and we look after a lot of customers. Um, and we're not, you know, we're not an independent one-off business. Uh, and we're not a hotel that has um, a very craft-driven kitchen that's able to have more skills um, to support the kitchen. So I accepted that, you know what, we're going to have some food waste. So I suppose there are three or four things we did initially and we've carried on doing ever since. One was to have a limited menu, um, a smaller menu, a shorter menu, a more seasonal menu. And doing so, it just meant that we were more in control of what we were throwing away and there was obviously less of it. Secondly, we made sure our portions were smaller, um, not too small because you want to leave feeling as though you are full and you've had a lovely meal. Um, Thirdly, we always ask our customers since the you know, last 15, 20 years if they want to take food away. And things are changing um, in doggy bags. You know, years ago, people felt they were quite embarrassed, whereas now it's become more acceptable. Um, but the main driver for, for managing the food waste really has to be that that goes into the biodegradable bag that's then sent off to the anaerobic digestion center that turns it into um, uh, fuel. Um, and, and, and that's as simple as that. You know, it, it's, it's turned into biofuel, which obviously generates homes. In fact, I have one not far from where I live um, that, that, that you know, drives 10,000 homes. So, you know, apart from sending the staff to go and look at these things, um, they, albeit they are smelly, these plants, they are a wonderful example of us being able to use food waste in a productive way. So sometimes I think that, you know, we've just got to not give ourselves too hard a time that we do, you know, we do create food waste. Um, but as long as there is a, a use for it, um, then it's okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So as an iconic chef yourself, what advice would you give to younger chefs who are thinking about, you know, 
running a sustainable restaurant themselves? Well, um, I, I definitely wouldn't say I'm iconic. I'm just saying I'd, I'd probably say I'm more of a veteran after 30 years. <laughs> but in regards to, um, I would say you've got a, you, you, a few things. First of all, um, you can't lose um, your sense of humour. I think that is essential um, because it's a pretty tough world, hospitality, especially now after COVID um, and, and Brexit doesn't make things easier. I think you've got to make sure that you understand numbers and you've got to make sure that by that, I mean, you've got to appreciate that there has to be cash in the bank. And if there isn't, then, you know, profit you might be making and ideals you might have are all irrelevant. Um, I've always believed that better half the artisan than the dead artisan. So um, you've got to know your numbers. And um, I think you've got to take the view that you've got to take it slowly. Because when we started as a coffee shop in, funny enough, in Notting Hill, just outside Notting Hill, and now we're out of London, it was a very much a journey, a passage. You know, my first organic product was a long life smoothie in a packet. And my first, um, first meat, which I bought, um, was a British um, a chicken, albeit it was factory farmed. Now, I knew that if I did everything I wanted to do and I believed in on day one, I probably wouldn't have done 20 years at Lussmann's. I wouldn't have got there. Today, because every single six months, a year, we constantly reviewed, improved, and listened to what was going on around us, it meant that we could improve, we could, we could, we could be financially viable. You know, we could sustain our growth. And again, you know, you know, sometimes business is regarded as a dirty word, but the most sustainable thing one can do is, I suppose, is to hire staff and they pay taxes and we all live in a better world. Um, so it was just taking the view that, you know, slowly does it. There's no need to rush. Um, there's no need to try and change everything on day one because, you know, I was knocking on people's doors about recycling all my waste and being 100% waste free um, and nothing into landfill uh, 20 years ago. And it was a nightmare. It was really difficult. And when we started doing it properly, it cost me four or five times the price um, that it does today. And I suppose what I've learned from that is is just to know understand your business, but recognize the fact that hopefully restaurants and cafes and bars, et cetera, are here for a long time. And in that time, you'll have plenty of opportunity to constantly tweak, improve, adjust, modify. And as long as your customers are happy and the staff enjoy what they do, then money will come in to give you the opportunity to take the business to the next step. But if you aren't doing well as a business, then unfortunately the whole sustainability philosophy becomes stuck and then you go into this idea of should I cut my prices should I start doing deals and I think you know that's probably the last thing I would say is deals I always feel is not the way forward you know customers who believe in what you do and if you're good at it will come back for more absolutely yeah well, thank you for that advice so finally where can our listeners uh, find out more about you and your restaurants uh, well, we've got a website, I think, as everyone does in the world. So it's Lussmans, that's L-U-S-S-M-A-N-N-S, Lussmans.com. Um, the business is called Lussmans uh, Sustainable Fish and Grill. Um, and uh, we are continuing to grow. Um, we are still rather small. Um, and each restaurant is very, very different. Um, but they can find us um, north of London in Hertfordshire at the moment. So that's Hartford, Hitchin. Harpenden, which is actually open at the moment, and St Albans. Um, but beyond that, um, 
I am sure that Lusmans will continue and hopefully not be too far um, from a town, you know, on the other side of, of, of the river. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast and sharing your advice. Cheers, Amy. Next up, Tim Breaker from Vital is with us to share their vision for sustainable takeaways. Okay, so thank you for joining us on Zero Waste Code today. Would you like to introduce yourself and your sustainable business? Sure, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, hi everyone, my name is Tim. I'm one of the three co-founders of Vital. We are a digital deposit-free reusable packaging as a service system for uh, takeaway and delivery food. So um, our vision is that uh, each and every one of us can uh, yeah, take away food from the restaurants uh, nearby or order delivery food without producing uh, single-use packaging waste. Yeah, so and, how big is the issue of takeaway food and waste in Europe? What sort of scale of impact does it have on the environment? Well, so um, I don't have exact numbers on the European market, but um, at, as we are uh, based in Cologne, Germany, and uh, as uh, as we've started just a year and a half ago, we're mainly also operating in the German-speaking uh, countries. So here we uh, looked at a problem of 281,000 tons of single-use packaging waste just from uh, to-go food. And uh, this is what we set out to, to reduce. And um, if you uh, yeah, imagine that uh, Germany is not like the perfect place for takeaway and delivery food. So for example, the UK produces or the market size of takeaway and delivery food is, is much bigger in the U UK. So therefore we can expect that uh, in the UK, the market for, uh, for this, this solution we are offering is also slightly bigger than, than in Germany. Definitely. So just out of interest, is that figure um, pre-COVID or does that take into account, you know, the surge in takeaway food since COVID? Very, very good question. So uh, these are numbers from uh, 2018, so pre-COVID. Wow. And uh, there has been a recent study from a uh, German environmental uh, NGO. It's called uh, Deutsche Umwelthilfe. And they uh, recorded basically during the first lockdown in uh, 2020 a uh, rise of 10% in uh, takeaway and delivery uh, food packaging waste. So uh, that means that in Germany alone, 80,000 additional to-go food packages were wasted every hour. And um, yeah, that just also, I think, always um, reminds ourselves how big the problem is in terms of uh, number of single-use uh, containers that we produce uh, with uh, with these habits of takeaway and delivery food well yeah so yeah what is your solution to this problem so um yeah our solution is a reusable packaging system that uh, works basically um, like a mixture of a car sharing service or scooter sharing service and a library so um, we provide uh, restaurants as well as um, consumers with the Vital app. Um, so we have a consumer app and a, a restaurant partner app. And uh, consumers, they just download the, the app, register with their payment information and can then borrow as many reusable containers from any partner outlet as they want for free. 
They don't have to pay anything and uh, they just check them out onto their account, just like you would rent out uh, books from the library. And then there is a 14 day free rental period. So um, for the consumer, it really only costs something um, if they uh, don't return the containers within uh, 14 days. And the system is financed by the uh, restaurants. So um, they pay us on a pay-per-use basis, which is uh, very easily comparable for them compared to uh, single-use packaging costs. And there the great news is that we are cheaper than the uh, so-called biodegradable single-use uh, containers. That means that um, we charge a restaurant between 15 and 35 cents, uh, depending on the size of the packaging, which is uh, totally comparable to their uh, single-use uh, packaging prices if they're already um, using some sort of slightly more sustainable single-use packaging. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's really great for the restaurants that they can not only save waste, but also costs with uh, participating in, in our reusable packaging system. Yeah, and you've got quite a few different sort of types of packaging as well, haven't you? How many sort of are there? Exactly. So, um, so we started with a regular lunch uh, bowl and um, now really enlarged uh, the system. And as, as we understand Vital as the operating system for reusables, it's really easy for us to uh, add different uh, types of containers, uh, different forms, different uh, materials as well. So at the moment, we have um, three bowls for soups, uh, poke bowl, um, salad bowl, and, and so on. So three different types of bowls. Then we have a, a menu box or snack box. So it's basically a bowl with uh, two compartments. So you can separate, for example, um, the rice when you order Asian food um, from the rest of the dish and, and so on. And then uh, we also offer um, cups sushi packaging and uh, reusable pizza packaging amazing yeah so are all of these made out of the same thing and so what are some of the properties of recyclable excuse me if i pronounce it wrong um polypropylene and why did you choose to use this material for your product Yes, very good. Very good question. So, so most of our containers are indeed made out of uh, polypropylene and that's a very uh, well-researched and easy to recycle uh, plastic uh, material. So um, we are choosing, choosing plastic for, for most of our uh, cups just because it's very robust. It's, um, as, as said before, uh, able to be recycled and you can reheat your food in the microwave. And um, yeah, we're able to, to offer basically leak-proof uh, containers. So, so those are uh, some of the advantages. And then, for example, with uh, coffee cups, here we um, have a polypropylene version, but also a um, double-walled uh, steel coffee cup um, because, um, yeah, we can, we can switch to steel as um, you usually don't reheat your coffee in the microwave. Um, so, so that's, um, and, uh, and that's, yeah, from just from appeal, especially for higher class uh, coffee shops, they, um, they prefer the uh, double walled uh, steel coffee cup um, as, as, as a reusable option for, for their, uh, for their uh, coffees. And um, yeah, so, so basically, um, we did also in the beginning think about, um, like, uh, for example, in Germany, we have these things called Weggläser, so a glass solution. But 
as you can imagine, uh, glass breaks easily. It's it's quite heavy, so so those are some of the the disadvantages, and uh, therefore we we see that uh, polypropylene really offers the uh, yeah for most use cases the the best uh, material qualities. Great. So, how does your service uh, reduce CO two emissions? Because it's not something that you would automatically think, you know, oh, that that will save me, you know, some of my carbon footprint. So, how exactly does it reduce CO two emissions? Yes. So, um, so in, in, indeed, we don't uh, have like the reduction of CO two emission as our number one North Star KPI. Um, instead, we really focus on um, on the amount, so the number of uh, of containers that we replace, as this is also directly linked to our uh, revenue, and um, yeah, also in terms of uh, littering, uh, the the main KPI, like we reduce the number of containers, the number of single use containers wasted. Um, nonetheless, we did look at the uh, CO two footprint, and as we uh, source uh, source our containers locally. We uh, and and each of our uh, polypropylene bowls can be used um, at least 200 times uh, in their life cycle, and already after the tenth use, they're better than single use. And over the course of the 200 cycles, they uh, eliminate or they they save 30 kilograms of CO2 emissions compared to single use packaging. Great. So out of interest, what happens after the 200 sort of um, uses? Yeah, I mean, uh, that excellent question. Uh, as It's not like uh, suddenly after the 200th use, the container knows, hey, I'm, I'm done, like I'm ready to die. Um, so, so the quality uh, check is, is done by our partners. And uh, since we are a quite young system, we don't have any containers that uh, cross the 200 uh, cycle mark yet, but um, when once they do, or even earlier, if uh, if partners, for example, say, "Hey, this uh, this container was uh, scratched really badly, or or something happened with it, I cannot serve my food in that container anymore," then uh, we we take that back for controlled recycling. And uh, for recycling or good recyclability, it's always key to have like mono to collect mono material. So, um, yeah, just material of one one type. And uh, that's easily done as all of our containers have individual tracking IDs. So it's really uh, easy for us to tell our partners, hey, please put, put that broken container to the side and, and we'll pick it up the next time we're there. And so so we collect them for recycling. Unfortunately, um, under EU regulation, it's not yet possible to uh, really do new bowls and have like a bowl-to-bowl -bowl concept with uh, bowls made out of polypropylene. But uh, we are working on, on that bowl-to-bowl uh, -bowl concept. Um, so for now, if uh, we take back the, the polypropylene bowls and they're recycled, they're recycled into uh, different kinds of products. So, for example... Uh, yeah, uh, I, ridiculously, uh, I find, but uh, like toys for kids or a bench or something like that. Amazing. Yeah. So finally, uh, where can our listeners download your app or find out more? Yes. So um, you you find out more on our website. It's uh, called uh, vital.org. So uh, V-Y-T-A-L dot O-R-G. And uh, the app can be downloaded in the app or in the Play Store. So um, we're available for both Android and iOS users. 
And um, yeah, as as said before, um, until now we're mainly operating in in Germany. So um, there are almost 1,000 partners all around the country, um, mainly in in the bigger cities like Berlin, Munich, Cologne, Hamburg. And uh, yeah, I'd really love if uh, some of your listeners uh, tried it out when they're in Germany. Fantastic. Yeah. So for any of our German listeners, um, I would recommend downloading it. I did download it and it is beautifully made. And um, yeah, I hope they check it out. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Last but not least, here's co-founder of Carbon Cancel, Julian Swinkles. Um, uh, and Carbon Cancel is a startup uh, that helps individuals uh get more control over their carbon emissions. Uh, and we want to help them make them as accessible and actionable as something like your bank balance. Amazing, yeah. So what was the inspiration behind creating Carbon Council? Is you know a carbon footprint something that you and your team have always been interested in? Yeah, so um, we were actually, the four of us, the four founders, we went on a, a holiday together. So we're university friends. Um, and we actually started a, a discussion about uh, uh, who had the smallest carbon footprint reaching the location. Um, and that actually kind of cascaded into a longer discussion about, okay, you know, do we actually know what our carbon footprints are? Um, and then we noticed, you know, this is actually something that's quite important to tackle climate change, but yet still uh, there's a big gap in terms of, you know, uh, the amount of people that actually know what their carbon emissions are. Uh, and in, in my opinion, you know, knowledge is always the necessary first step towards uh, meaningful action. That's what you see with uh, you know, governments and corporates. They're all setting uh, you know, net zero strategies. Uh, and the first step is often to, you know, to map out your, your carbon emissions. So that's what a lot of uh, companies are doing at the moment. But, you know, that's that's i think half of the the solution and the other half is definitely to look at the consumers the people to see how they are uh, attacking climate change and that's where we thought we would step in to help them uh, get a better insight into what their carbon emissions are and how they can start producing them to live a, a carbon neutral life great yeah so how is how on earth is a carbon footprint actually calculated mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of different carbon calculators out there actually at the moment, and the the amount is also growing uh, quite rapidly. So it's good that it's gaining momentum, but we do see that there's also quite a, a big difference between some of the calculators. So uh, the method that we use is based uh, based on scientific data in the Netherlands uh, that we've we we work together with a consortium of partners to make sure uh, we have the right data. And then there's actually four different uh, pillars, you could call them. Um, so household, uh, consumption, travel. Uh, uh, so that's more day-to-day travel and then uh, flights at the end. So that's the four kind of pillars we use to calculate your carbon emissions. Uh, and if you, you know, cover those pillars, you have about 95% accuracy in terms of what your carbon footprint is. Great. So how do you then inspire behavioral change? And is it actually difficult to sort of inspire that change? 
yeah it's it's definitely very difficult to 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 inspire behavioral change uh, it's quite easy to live carbon neutral because that's offsetting your emissions but but then uh, actually continuously working on your carbon footprint to to actually bring it down uh, is actually quite difficult it's also what we see um, but it is important to notice that uh, you know conscious consumer behavior is not really uh, simply just boasting that you have good virtues uh, but it actually creates uh, you know deeper changes within how we view the world as well so the way i see it is that you know you could see i read a report recently that stated that uh, 100 companies emit more than uh, 70% of the global co2 emissions so you could say okay why aren't we working with those big companies to reduce their emissions. But I think the, the other half of that story is that they respond to the uh, global demand. So actually helping them, uh, helping consumers to shift their values and their consumer behavior is, is definitely also part of that puzzle that needs to be fixed. Uh, so we also need to look, look inwards and how we, um, we, we do a couple of things at Carbon Cancel to kind of inspire this behavioral change. Um, one of them is to provide personalized tips based on the, the someone's lifestyle. Uh, a second one is to uh, nudge them towards more sustainable alternatives based on their lifestyle. So we do that by providing our customers discounts to uh, sustainable web shops or local uh, uh, food shops in the Netherlands or thrift shops uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, and we also provide uh, a dashboard for our customers so that they can keep track of their carbon emissions, see where their lung, uh, the largest chunks are of their emissions, and try to inspire them to uh, reduce those by um, through our social media channels, for example, and email updates. Uh, we try to provide real value to our customers. Um, and finally, we also created a guidebook to help uh, consumers reduce their emissions with a lot of fun facts and interesting ways to uh, to live a more sustainable life. Great. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. So like you say, corporations are, you know, the, the big players in mm-hmm. carbon carbon emissions. So what is then the impact of an individual's unchecked carbon footprint? Right. So if you look at I mean, this this differs very much where you live in the world. But if you look at uh, Western Europe, uh, specifically, the, f- the average footprint ranges somewhere between uh, 4 to 20 tons of CO2 per year, depending on your lifestyle. So if you're you know, vegan, you don't fly, uh, it'll, it'll be more towards 4 tons. Whereas if you make a lot of intercontinental trips uh, every year, uh, and eat quite a bit of meat and do a lot of shopping, then you'll quickly go towards the 20 tons. But on average, uh, in the Netherlands, it's uh, nine tons per person at the moment. Amazing. Yeah, I, I think I calculated my own. It said something like seven tons. So I'm <laughs> quite happy with that. <laughs> so are your team um, climate neutral themselves? And how hard is it then to, to maintain? Yeah, so we're, we're definitely all living uh, a carbon neutral. Uh, and that's very easy to maintain because you, you calculate your emissions and 
uh, and you offset all of, all of the emissions through, uh, through through certified projects. But the main challenge is, you know, to continuously find engaging ways to uh, reduce your footprint, because in the end, that's uh, that's really what we want to focus on uh, is to really tr transition society uh, or, you know, speed up the transition towards a more sustainable uh, uh, lifestyle. Um, and that's definitely more of, more, more of a challenge we've noticed. So how can we continue to find engaging ways to, you know, encourage everyone to make uh, new decisions uh, that are better for the planet? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, speaking of new decisions, um, what does the future hold for Carbon Council? Yeah, so there's a couple of very interesting uh, things that we have uh, in the pipeline. One is is that we want to try and test if if companies can offset their emissions through uh, local citizens. So if we can find uh, ways in which, uh, say, someone living in in uh, in Amsterdam, if they can prove they reduce their emissions by one or two tons, and the company can offset that, then a consumer could get paid through something like a carbon coin which is then spendable uh, in these local uh, uh, web shops or local uh, local thrift shops or local food stores that uh, further stimulate a sustainable lifestyle. So in that way, people could get rewarded for the changes that they make, which I think is something that could be uh, very exciting. Yeah, definitely. That, that sounds really interesting. So, yeah, where can our listeners um, keep up to date with what you're doing at Carbon Council and use your carbon calculator if they'd like to? Yeah, so our website is carboncancel.com. Um, we have a, both an English and Dutch version of our website, and they can always uh, subscribe to our newsletter on our website after filling in the calculator and follow us on our social media channels on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And, and we post there quite regularly. Amazing. Yeah, well, thank you so much for telling us about Carbon Council and for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode.